You're listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. On this podcast, we feature a curated selection of content from the pages of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. At New Ideal, we explore pressing cultural issues from the perspective of Rand's philosophy, objectivism, which upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. Find us on the web at newideal.einrand.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Ideal Live. This is the video and podcast series of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. My name is Ilan Jerno. I'm joined today by my colleague, Ankar Gatte. He is the Chief Philosophy Officer and Senior Fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. Welcome, Ankar. Ilan. Uh, what we do on this series is discuss complex issues and events shaping our world from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism, a philosophy that upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. You can learn more about our publication online, newideal.einrand.org. And for those of you who are watching the live stream through YouTube or Facebook or Periscope, if you want to submit questions, you can connect with us on Zoom. Uh, the meeting ID is 812-506-718. So, I want to uh, sort of set up today's topic by sort of reminding people about sort of the big, one of the biggest stories coming out of the coronavirus crisis, which is last month, uh, the, the government passed what I think is a historic uh, bill. It's, it's, it's historic in its scale and its, its size. It's called the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, also known as CARES. And it provides for something like $2 trillion, with a T, $2 trillion of aid for individuals, families, businesses, local governments, uh, state governments, public health. There's practically no sector of society that is going to be um, unaffected or um, ineligible for receiving some kind of money. Many individuals who qualify, depending on their income, will receive uh, either a check in the mail or a direct deposit of $1,200. And if you have children, you'll get $500 each for, uh, per, per child. And some of this money is in loans, some of it is in tax incentives or expansions of existing welfare programs. And what's interesting, I mean, there's several interesting things to raise about this, but one is for some of these, if you're a small business, you have to apply. But for most people who qualify for the, the $1,200, there's no application. You just, it'll come to you that you don't have to ask for it and you'll get it whether or not you want it, which raises some interesting uh, questions. So I think the, what we wanna sort of dig into here is there's a real question about um, taking this money because uh, it's not obvious that it's a good thing or a bad thing to do it. There's kind of a dilemma here. And you know, I was, I was looking through various FAQs to understand more about the, the stimulus uh, bill. And the FAQs have a lot of questions about, you know, what, what does this mean for my taxes? What does this mean for other benefits that I get? But one question that isn't really being asked enough, I think, is, should I accept this money? Well, what, what should I do with this money? Is it right for me to take it? Is it wrong for me to take it? And I think this, is, this question is heightened by, you know, if, if your view of government is that, um, you know, if you really care about freedom and you're concerned about government being uh, involved in more of the economy, it raises the question in a more acute way because there, there's just no way around the fact that if government is giving out this scale of, of money, it has to grow in important ways just to execute on this sort of delivery. 
and then the monitoring and, and of course this this isn't the end of it i think there's other there's a push for more money another stimulus bill so Ankara, i think this is a good place to start with there is a question here and i don't think it's restricted to people who um, share our view of government, which is that government should be limited to the protection of individual rights. I think it's just a general issue of if you if you have questions about what government should be doing in response to the coronavirus, this is a real issue. Yeah, and I, yeah, but I, I think it arises particularly for the people who think that there's something wrong with this or something suspicious about this. And I think it's it's a part of the reason I wanted to talk about this. I thought this would be a good topic for us as we're doing so many episodes related to the pandemic and, and the government response, that it's an interesting issue to talk about because I know both firsthand, so people have asked me about, like, should I take the money and people who are involved kind of high up in organizations, not necessarily, not only the CEO, but people who are making decisions about like, should we apply for a loan and so on? Um, and then I know indirectly as well, I've heard, I mean, sort of people asking me that someone's asked them. And the, so a lot of people are struggling with this question. And I think it indicates something good for the people who are struggling with this question, because they have some sense that, like, I didn't really earn this money. It's just being handed to me. It's a handout. It's, it's and as you put it with these checks, they're just going to show up in the mail. Um, I didn't have to apply for this. I didn't do anything. And so it's that it's the unearned nature of it that is is raising this kind of question. And I think one of the first things to note about this is not everybody's asking this question. So it says something good about a person. I think that it's like I don't really want to receive the unearned. So isn't there something wrong with this? And if I collect them, and I'm doing something wrong because there are people who it they never think twice about. Oh yeah, I deserve this. I'm entitled, like the idea of an entitlement state. I'm entitled to this because I'm a citizen or something like that. And they don't think at all, like where's this money coming from? Where did the government get this money? Who did it take it from? I'm getting this from taxpayers, is that right? Um, so that, and it points to how to think about this, to, to first to note that fact, not everybody's asking this question and it's a virtue to be asking this question. Yeah, I mean, you, you raised this sort of entitlement perspective that some people have. I think it's, I mean, you, you grew up in Canada, I grew up in the UK, and I think there's a very different perspective on government's relationship to the, to the individual in, in the UK, and I think in Canada to, to a large degree. And I think in America, at least it used to be more so that, that don't want to be handed, they don't want something that's undeserved. There's a really strong sense of you work for your, you work to support yourself. You're this whole idea of self-responsibility, as some people think of it. And I think now we're in this position where we are in an emergency. There's a real crisis, and which I just to, just to put a sharper point on this dilemma. Um, and it's not clear, like who's like from a lot of people's perspective, what has led us into this crisis? Because it, you know, I mean, I, you know, where I'm living, there just. Uh, lots and lots of places are shut down. I'm in California and I know where you live, a lot of things are shut down and these businesses are struggling. I mean, I'm getting emails from restaurants I attended. I, I went to years ago. I, they found my email. They say, hey, we're here. You want to do takeout? And I feel really bad for them. And I know a lot of people are, are out of work. So there's a, there's a kind of um, emergency quality to this, which I think changes people's um, perspective on it. Um, so I mean, 
maybe the what, one interesting thing to do here is to kind of broaden the, the, the field of view because the, so we'll talk about the emergency aspect of it in a minute, but I think there's a, it's not like this is the first thing government's ever handed out to people. Right. I mean, there's a massive, massive number of programs already on the books for decades where the, the basic process is government uh, takes money from people who've earned it and sort of redirects it to other people based on various criteria, whether it's need or, or some other kind of um, assessment. So thinking about that, I mean, Ayn Rand was put, you know, this question was put to her, um, in, I think in, in the 60s when she was publishing her journal um, and, and, and periodicals. And I think her, it's worth going to her uh, analysis of this because it's a very interesting perspective. So she was the champion of laissez-faire capitalism and individualism. And I don't think there was a more fierce and articulate opponent of government uh, uh, expansion and, and regulation and, and welfare state. And yet she has a, a, what I think for many people is a shocking perspective on this. Uh, yeah, that, so it, this is in an essay, as, as you're saying, that you wrote in the 60s. Uh, it's called A Question of Scholarships. Um, and you actually can find that essay up on, uh, up on our website. There's a screenshot that Alon has just put up. And one of the things she says there, she was often asked this question by students of her philosophy about like, isn't there something wrong if I advocate for a more limited government, for a government that is not dispensing handouts, taking from some and giving to others. And if you think, as you said, she's writing in the 60s. And if you think the growth of these programs after World War II, I mean, this is when you get the, the massive increases in social security, Medicare, there was more and more um, what are called entitlement programs and the, I mean people even now refer to it as an entitlement state like the, this is and when you look at the federal go government's budget and you see how much goes to this so there was it became more and more of a question of is it legitimate to take social security unemployment insurance medicare government got more involved in education so it's a question of scholarships it's about it's there's public scholarships is it legitimate to take that money um, now there's I mean, such a massive amount of government loans in education. And this was her reply to it. So she thought um, there's two principles involved here, an issue of justice and an issue of integrity. And I think the people worrying about this issue and now in the pandemic are thinking about both things. Like, is it just to take the unearned? And then for the people who say, look, I advocate for, in some sense, a more limited government, it shouldn't be doing all these kinds of things. I don't think it should be have been bailing out GM in the financial crisis or the banks in the financial crisis. And I'm suspicious like it shouldn't be bailing out now. I'm against bailouts as a kind of general thing. So there's, so there's an issue of justice and an issue of integrity. And her view was, yeah, you need to, these are important principles, but you have to think how they apply in this situation. And this is part of how she put the principle. And she, this is, she put it particularly with regard to scholarships, but then she said it applies to social security and unemployment insurance. So I'll cut a little bit from the quote to make it more general. It's quote, the right to accept rests on the right of the victims to the property or some part of it, which, is, which was taken from them by force. 
the recipient is morally justified, and then she puts in italics, italics is the recipient is morally justified only so long as he regards it as restitution and opposes all forms of welfare statism. Those who advocate for such programs have no right to them. Those who oppose them have. If this sounds like a paradox, the fault lies in the moral contradictions of welfare statism, not in its victims." Close quote. So, I mean, and she knows this is both prov provocative and it seems like a paradox, but she says only the people opposed to these programs are in justice uh, entitled to them as if they regard it as restitution, as compensation from what's been taken from you. And if you think, as a, to say that so much of the government's budget is now these entitlement programs like Social Security, Medicare, like where is it getting that money? It's getting it through, largely through taxes. I mean, uh, everybody's paycheck, you have deductions for Social Security, for Medicare. So the government's taking all kinds of money from you to pay for these programs. And her view is that this is, an immoral function of governments, an improper, unjust thing that the government is doing, it's taking from the creators of property, taking their property, what they've earned, and giving it to people who haven't earned it. And if you take seriously the American system of government, it's supposed to be we have rights to life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness. So there, there's something fundamentally wrong in what the government is doing. And those who are opposed to it shouldn't victimize themselves. So if you think, like, so um, she collected Social Security after, I mean, she wrote this before she collected Social Security and it's part of her justification, I think. Um, though she's not writing it to justify what she's writing it because people face this dilemma. And it's, uh, and we'll talk about this at the end, but it's using something good about the court. Like he's worried about taking handouts. But if you think like what happens if you don't take them? If you don't collect social security, if you're unemployed now and you don't apply for unemployment insurance, who gets the money? It would be only people who either don't think about and don't care about, well, social security is taking money from some people and giving it to other people. And same with unemployment insurance. They either don't care about that or they actively advocate for these pro if, programs. Those would be the only people collecting. And her view is like, that's a double injustice. You're once victimized by their taking stuff from you without your consent. You're opposed to these programs. So now you can't get any um, restitution either. So you're doubly victimized. And if she's against self-sacrifice, if you're about, if you're supposed to be pursuing your happiness, not sacrificing it, then you don't willingly become a double victim. Just uh, I wanted to build on that because um, what the, the the point you're raising kind of puts this in the wider context. But one of the things she says that I think is is also worth drawing out. Uh, so she's right, responding to people uh, considering scholarships, private versus government scholarships, and, and sort of a various range of of kind of situations. But one of the things that really leapt out at me it was true in 1966 when she wrote this, and I think it's even more true today, which is you can't really calculate what has been taken from you. So yes, you can look at your payroll and you can look at the social security and you can, you can itemize that. 
but there's so many more ways in which you're impacted that you, there's no, I don't think there's a way to compute that in terms of missed opportunities and, and, and opportunity costs that have uh, been put into your way. And then the, the sort of whole industries that have been impacted that um, there's jobs that aren't available unless you work for the government. And, and so, so, so the government's role in society is so vast and, um, and, and, and destructive in, to the extent that it's not doing its proper function of protecting freedom that um, it, I think it's a mistake to think, well, you know, I only paid in, you know, X number of dollars since I started working. So really all I can take back. I think that's a mistake because it's, you're way under counting if you're going to try to put a dollar amount on it. I think in this case where we're talking about, if we bring it to the context of the pandemic, I mean, I don't think we can begin to, to fathom the full scope of the economic destruction that's already happened in the first, what, month or two of the lockdowns. And, and I think it's worth asking, you know, so in, in a program where it's a direct entitlement program, like you're just getting money because you're not employed, that's coming from people who are employed. What, how do you think about the issue of, okay, well, where did this pandemic come from? I mean, it's not because of the people who aren't employed. So how, what is the causality here? And how does that factor into thinking about the role of justice and, and integrity in here? I mean, so I think it's true and important to note that if, so we have a novel coronavirus, it's a new infectious disease. Um, it's something people would have to deal with. There'll be death from it and there'll be economic impact. So it, it um, even if there weren't these government lockdowns, think for instance, the airline industries and tourism more broadly, they likely would be impacted. So now you can't, I mean, borders are closed, you can't do all kinds of things. But even if these weren't coercively imposed by the government, people likely would be flying a lot less, going to big resorts, cruise ships, and so on. So there would be economic impact from the virus, because uh, it's a new thing that we have to learn to deal with. But the shutdowns are, make the economic damage on a scale, um, it's just on a completely different scale. I think that you're telling everybody you either have to work from home or else you can't work. Um, and so many businesses and so on, and have restaurants with an obvious example, but restaurants, hair salons, all these small businesses, but not only small, um, can't function. I mean, so they might be able to do a little bit from home and do takeout and so on. But I, I mean, I've been going to restaurants in our area that we had frequented before and we will want to, we hope they can stay in business, giving them business. But when I asked them like, how are you doing? It's they three quarters at least of their staff is gone for a load and so on. So it's, it's the, the scale here is vastly greater than if it was just we're dealing with the virus. And if you were just dealing with the virus, I mean, part of the risk of having a tourism business and so on is that things like this can arise where it impacts people's willingness to travel and go on vacation and so on. So that is, if they were more free, they would have means to deal with that. But here now with a complete shutdown, you're, it's, it's, an, it's much more akin, I think, to an emergency situation that the, this can't happen absent the government locking down. So part, some sectors of the economy will be impacted, but there's this almost global impact. On, I mean, I don't know anybody who hasn't been impacted by this. Um, so in that situation, I think it's, I, I 
would in in thinking of would i take government money would i apply for loans and so on and we at ari have applied but we thought a lot about like should we apply and um, and and we'll talk about some of the things to be on guard against even if you decide that i would take this money or, or i would apply um it's you i think in, in this kind of emergency situation you have to think am i really being impacted financially by this um and I mean, like a restaurant or something like that. It's obvious. Yeah, you're, I, some businesses I know went from uh, the, the revenue, they went to zero. Like literally, they're, they, they don't have any revenue. Um, you have to think, if, if, am I really being financially impacted by this? Because there's no way, I mean, the government doesn't have any money to give out. It's not like it's, it has a big chest of savings that now it's going into. So, so it's taking money from some people, giving it to other people, there's going to be all kinds of inefficiencies, injustices. The people with more political pull are going to get the money. And, and when you read about the bills and that, what they're trying to stuff into the bills and so there's, it's going to be really bad. Um, and in those circumstances, and when there's people who've been more, more disproportionately impacted by the government's policy, if it was, yeah, I've lost a little bit, but not much, I would think, yeah, no, maybe I should not apply. But if you've really been financially uh, handicapped by this, and we've seen a big impact at ARI for this, and have had to put staff on reduced hours and furlough and so on. Um, in that condition, I think it is, yes, it's legitimate to apply from this. But again, on Ayn Rand's condition, only if you oppose government wielding this kind of coercive power. And it really has to be both, I think. It has to be you're opposed to the lockdowns, that, it, that, that government, and here it's state governments, a governor should have this power at, to, to say, okay, everybody, you're, you're confined to your homes unless you need uh, groceries or need to go to an emergency room or something, uh, get medicine. Um, and that then like it, it locks down and now it's gonna redistribute everybody's money and come up with some rules about how this works. And so you have to really and genuinely be opposed to those things. That's part of what she's stressing. It's not like hand waving. Yeah, I don't like these things. And so you have to really be opposed to them and want their repeal um, in order for it to be morally legitimate to take it. So in thinking about this, that, so, I mean, another way to put what you've said is that you, you have to objectively be a victim in a sense, like you, you have to be able to say, look, yeah, I went from this to zero revenue or my, my business has collapsed or my, you know, I'm not able to do the things I need to do to be productive and sort of, and recognize that there's, there is, um, and I think be clear about what government's role here should be. Now, I, I don't, I don't think we should get in, too, too deep into sort of government's function in the context of a pandemic. You, you did a presentation on this just this weekend, mm -hmm. which people can find on YouTube. We did a, a conference uh, on sort of government's proper role in the face of an infectious disease pandemic. And if people, we refer people to that and put it in the, in the show notes. But just in terms of thinking, like in, if you can give us like a bullet perspective on, um, because you stress the idea of being opposed to the lockdowns. And I think that itself is controversial because a lot of people will say, well, but what do you, like, are you going to walk around and infect people, right? So maybe you can clarify where you stand on that. Yeah, so it's not being, 
the, there's a difference between thinking, um, okay, it would just be life as normal or lockdown. Like the, if you think those are the two alternatives, then it's, it seems like, yeah, wouldn't we have to lock down? And so we were faced with a new virus and so on. But those aren't the two alternatives. And when you look at the government's own advice pre the pandemic, when you look at what the CDC, I've read the report from 2017, and it's a report written for policymakers, government officials. Um, now it's for an influenza pandemic, but there's no, uh, there's not that much difference from what we're facing now and, and the flu pandemic. And this is a, they're thinking of the whole range all the way to a pandemic like 1918, that severe, that contagious, and so, which is from what I've read, it's worse than, than what we're facing with COVID-19 now. They're looking at that whole range and most of what they recommend is voluntary actions. It's telling people about the hand washing and disinfecting and telling them about social distancing, but they need to figure out how to implement that. How do I do this at my business? Can, is there a way that I can stay open at a restaurant? Can I space tables out? Can I disinfect them? Can I, if I just have an office, can I extend working hours? And so instead of we work from nine to five, maybe you go on even a 24 hour work day and some people are in the office so they can socially distance and then their shift is over. So just like a factory shift work, you might have office shift work. But there would be all kinds of ways that people would voluntarily, I mean, they don't wanna get the virus, they don't wanna die. So the idea of they would just do the normal or else government has to lock us in our houses, that's not an alternative. And that wasn't what was envisioned by the CDC. The, at most, when they talk about coercive measures, it's about school closures. But even there, part of what they say is, well, and, and, and this is particularly with the flu because young kids get the flu. And so, so many people will be at, kids will be at home and so on. If school won't really function well. And then for schools and flu, which is again, different from this, um, the kids spread the flu. So there'll be a lot absent because they're sick, they're spreading it. So maybe have, you shut down schools, but it, it was part of what they write is, well, they're already sort of half shut down. And one of the things they allow is, the kids don't go to school, but all the teachers and go to school and you conduct classes and there would be webinars and so on. But not, they, I mean, it would be a lot easier if the teachers were at school and had all their resources and classrooms and, and blackboards and so on. Um, and then maybe large gatherings. But even there they say, well, if you can figure out ways to mitigate if you're having a concert. So it was voluntary um, in large part. And, and there's no, there was nothing, no discussion of shutting down a city, let alone a state. Um, and so that is the context and thinking of it as these coercive state lockdowns is not a policy that was even envisioned. So, I mean, there, there are a couple more aspects I think are worth touching on before we bring in a few of the questions that have stacked up um, while we've been on, on uh, in discussion. Um, one of the issues is I mean, you touched on this a bit, which is that there, there are people who are going to get money that are not really victims, and they certainly aren't opposed to this whole way of thinking about government. Um, and I mean, one of the things I, I'm anticipating will happen is, you know, some point in the future, there'll be a reckoning about sort of all the facts will come out about which businesses got it because of political influence and pull and which businesses really, you could say, have, have suffered but didn't get it. So 
we're getting glimpses of some of that with, um, I think there, I think it was Shake Shack received money and people said, well, wait a minute, you look at your balance sheets from last year. How is this possible? You have access to capital. You could do this without the, and so they, they quickly gave the money back. And I, I don't know the details of why they decided to apply, but there's already this, this whole perspective of it. It's, uh, and I think there's the, the other kind of thing is, um, there's the, the quarrel over Harvard University accepting money and Donald Trump uh, telling no, no, you got to give it back. And it, I mean, it, there's details here that are important, which is part of the, the big stimulus had a provision for higher education and, and Harvard's arguing, no, this is for students. And, and then, but there's still this question of, well, Harvard is sitting on a massive and multi-billion dollar endowment. So still, why do you need to take this money? And all kinds of, I think these are just the beginnings of what we're going to see as at least questionable, if not completely legitimate takings of money, which to me is just magnifying the injustices that we're going to see here. Um, I mean, do you have a, I mean, what is the issue then in terms of, let me, let me kind of put this objection to you then. Um, so suppose a check arrives in the mail and the person receiving it has watched this webinar and says, yeah, no, I, I, I totally oppose this. I oppose the lockdown. I oppose the whole system of government that does this. And I don't want to accept this. I don't want to be a part of a government that does this. And by accepting it, I'm sort of endorsing it in some way. Do you think there's something to that? Um, yes. So I, I think it is, it's understandable to feel that, that isn't this an endorsement of the program and so on. And I think it is if you're not opposed to it. So that it's, um, it's only in the context, and this is, this is why she's really stressing this and what we quoted from Ayn Rand, that in the context of you being opposed to these and that therefore part of what it means being opposed to it is that the government doesn't have the right to make victims of people, to decide, yeah, you count, so you're getting money and you don't count so much, so we're taking money from you to give to other people. So when it's doing that, it is creating victims that didn't exist before. And if you're really opposed to that, but it, the really opposed to it means you, this is a conviction of yours, then you're not sanctioning it if you're taking the money. That is, you're not saying, oh yeah, I, by your action. You're not saying, oh yeah, I agree with this. this I view this as something good. If you're taking the money and viewing it as restitution for the fact that the government has made you a victim in so, kinds of, so many ways and has taken your money. But this is why I think it matters in, in this case so there's a difference between just collecting social security in a normal, um, in a normal uh, social or cultural environment. So pre-pandemic, let's just put it like that. There's a difference between that and now when it's um, this incredible economic collapse. It, I do think it's relevant to think um, if, if, you're actually have been financially impacted by this. And so, so as I said, at ARI, um, we, we've applied for a loan because of this. If I got one of these checks in the mail, I think I would donate it, but I would donate it to someone who I think like a restaurant or so, something that I think is, you, you've really been destroyed by the government policies um, because I haven't been impacted in that way. I haven't lost my job and so on. So that kind of consideration, I do think you really have to think about in this case, uh, because we're facing, it really is an emergency. I mean, people can't function if they can't work. 
yeah, I just want to bring out one uh, issue that I think um, is worth sort of exploring a bit because you know, we, I, you know, there were stories about the airlines were in negotiations to get part of the money they wanted to bail out. And there was talk of, well, the government will take a stake in the airlines and then they become, and so this is sort of an echo of what happened with GM back in the, in the 2008 and people, you know, the, the, the derisive name for it became government motors because the government was sort of directing things. But I think there really is a worry uh, about strings being attached because I mean, for a lot of things, government influences private businesses through their contracts. Like if you contract with the government, you become subject to government regulations that no one else is. And that kind of helps to spread certain things about you know, workplace conditions and so on. And I can't, I mean, I think there's a, a really serious concern here that, I mean, all, you know, the rules and regulations and, and guidance on all of these, it's not even clear if you, if you get one of these small business loans, if you get one, what are the conditions and when is it going to be forgiven or not? And what are the, you know, do you have to bring people back at a certain date? And what if you don't? And what if you, there's some wrinkle that you missed and now you're, you know, so, I mean, what's your view of this whole, I mean, is there a way to avoid that? Um, it's again, I think something you really have to think about the, this issue of if you're getting government money, what, if any strings are attached. And in this case, as you're saying, this is one of the, one, the things that's very difficult about this case, I think. It's they're writing the rules as they go along. So you it might not, when, you, when you're faced with the decision, should I accept this loan, should I take this loan or not? You might not know what all the conditions are of it. And so, and then you find out, oh no, the strings attached, attached by, they're going to tell you, this is okay. So you've taken government money. This is what your hiring practices have to look like. For instance, like we've got this goal of uh, increasing diversity in the workplace and so on. So now you're subject to this. And so this is something you really have to think about because then it's not, doesn't, it's not just functioning as restitution. It's functioning as they've bought you. Um, and it's, it's, you have to think in, in at least two ways in effect that you've um, sold your business or you sold your soul, but both of these you have to think. Like, it's, am I have I handed over control of my organization now, partly to government? And I mean, the, the most obvious form is they take a ownership stake in the government. But if they're now imposing all kinds of rules and regulations, all kinds of controls on you, they've taken control of your business in a different kind of way, not through direct ownership, but sort of through decision making. So that's one, and it's very hard to navigate in this situation because. Like it says on the website, further rules to come and things like that. So it's like, what are the conditions of this? And the second is, um, and this is particularly in the context of that, that for to be legitimate to accept these kind of handouts, you have to be imposed in principle to these things. It's if now you start compromising your viewpoint, your position, and feel like, yeah, no, I shouldn't say anything because I've taken government money. So I should be looked the other way a little bit in regard to what it does, in regard to what I used to think. And you, and this can happen very gradually. This can happen very subtly. And it's something you have to be very concerned about. And something Ayn Rand in that essay, A Question of Scholarship, really warn, warns about that you have to think about this issue. And there's a lot of pressure. So part of the, the aren't you a hypocrite 
for taking government money is, I think a lot of the pressure is, what they care about is not that you're a hypocrite. What they care about is, so okay, stop criticizing government policy, stop advocating for the uh, repeal of these things. You've taken government money, so you don't have a say anymore. Um, so it's the advocates trying to say, we've bought your soul, so you can't speak up now. And so there will be a, that kind of pressure and you have to be able to resist it. And you can only resist it if you're opposed to these things on principle and you understand why you're opposed to them and, and continue to articulate your position. Yeah, no, I just, one thing is worth adding. So you, you mentioned earlier that we, the Iron Iron Institute as an organization has applied for, I forget which one exactly, but one of these loans. Um, and I mean, one of the things that came up is, you know, this can't, we can't allow this to change our principled position. I mean, if we do, then we're really violating our mission, violating our, our intellectual charter. And as an organization, we actually, I don't know if many people know, but we have a charter to sort of define our, our approach to the issues in a way that keeps us to our mission, which is to advance Ayn Rand's philosophy as she articulated it. And I think this is sort of, I mean, kind of another perspective on this is Ayn Rand often talked about the mixed economy as being this kind of civil war phenomenon where people are at each other's throats because of handouts and trying to scramble over each other to get more and kind of hobble their competitors. And it just creates this kind of environment of what people accuse capitalism of being, which is like dog eat dog kind of um, resentment and <clears throat> This idea that um, we now we now control you. We own, as you put it, you know, we, we've bought your soul. Um, that's, I think, one of the pernicious aspects of the mixed economy. It kind of it it pollutes people's minds and their integrity, where you know they they feel like, well, I'm a small business owner, and in the 2020 uh, um, crisis, I took some money. I shouldn't really be speaking out against this. You know, I don't want it to come out and bite me. I shouldn't run for government office because I did this. And this is the way in which it kind of perpetuates itself and makes people more and sort of, it gives them a perverse incentive, a vested perverse incentive in the system because they don't want to be the ones to say, well, maybe there's something deeply wrong here. Um, and and there's just, it, I don't think enough people appreciate the dynamics of how a mixed, so by a mixed economy, just to clarify for people who haven't heard that expression uh, before, it's, it's a society that is a combination of pockets of freedom and some respect for individual rights, which I think we have, and then massive amounts of government intervention and, and um, control over the economy and people's lives. And it's this blend that is un an unstable mixture. And I think we're seeing now this, this lurch forward more toward the government control. And there's other issues we should talk about in future episodes about what does that look like down the road in terms of the prospects for freedom. Um, so I, let's see if we can get in a few questions before yeah. we run out of time. And there's a lot of questions, uh, already. Um, let me look through the list here. Uh, there are, so there are students and there are retired people asking us questions and we got this quite, we talked about this a little bit in okay. the webinar. I'll take one. So, oh, so were you going to a question or? Oh, so should someone refuse an unearned handout from government to the extent that it exceeds the amount taken from him? And you made this point, Elon, which I think it's worth reiterating, that you can't make this kind of calculation. So it's, it's you can't calculate, even if, if you just took all the taxes from you, 
you don't really know. There's all kinds of indirect taxes. How much is gasoline tax? And if you're a heavy user of gasoline, how much have you paid in indirect taxes through that? Uh, the, so the price is higher than it would have been if there wasn't this, these enormous taxes on gas. There's so many things like that that you can't even calculate your tax burden. But then if you thought, okay, it's the tax burden, it's all the regulations and they're not equal either. So it's, if you're in an industry like healthcare, you're a doctor, how much, what's your loss of income because of how regulated healthcare is? You can't figure that out. And then if you had this, you brought this up as well. And then it's, if you think of like, what would I have done with this money? Would I have invested in so on? And so where would I be now if I had been able to keep this money and if I had been more free to run my medical practice and so on? You can't calculate this. So it's not an issue of like getting a spreadsheet and figuring this out. It's an issue of the principle involved that it, you have real reason, but you have to think about the reasons to think you're victimized in all kinds of ways. And if you're regarding this as restitution now, um, that's legitimate. And it's almost impossible for the government to be giving you too much back. There are conditions, I think it could be, but it's, it's not a calculus. It's much more the issue of the principle involved. So there's another question that I think we sort of touched on, but it's worth just sort of restating or putting um, in a broader context. So the question is about, um, you know, if government, you know, in this situation um, with state governors enforcing these lockdowns, um, is it accurate to compare the pandemic to a state of war, in which case, the government or state governments get exceptional powers. And I mean, my quick answer is I think, I don't think it's the right analogy. I don't think it's where we are. Uh, and there's, there's many ways in which it's a problem that governments at different levels have, have made much worse than it would normally be. So you can't talk about it as we're just stood here and someone attacked us. And so we're reacting, the virus came along. It's, there was massive failures across many, many years to be prepared for this. And, uh, and you can see some of that now as we are rolling through all these different crises, you know, you know hospitals lacking equipment, lacking masks. And it's because the hospitals, as you, you, you pointed this out, Ankar, the whole healthcare industry is so heavily regulated that it's, you, you have to rethink really seriously that hospitals are not really private. They're not in a position to make a lot of these decisions themselves in terms of preparedness, and they don't have the resources to do this because so much of it is controlled and dictated to them. So if you have hospitals that are in, in fundamental ways hamstrung, this is a government cause, that aspect of it is a government caused failure that has magnified the problem. So I think it, it's, it, that already puts it out of the, the context of this is, we're just facing a, a kind of a foreign enemy that we didn't do anything to antagonize. I and mean, we, we, we're in a situation that is in significant ways self-caused. Yeah, and even if you're thinking, so I agree completely, this is not a state of war, there's not some foreign power trying to kill us. But even in the context of a state of war, for when one's thinking about emergency powers, it's, I think you only start contemplating those when it's uh, an existential threat. So when you think this foreign enemy has the power to wipe out your whole form of government. And so your nation in effect. So even after 9-11, um, we're in a state of war. We had been with uh, Iran and all its proxies, but Iran doesn't have the power 
to topple the US government. So even there that you think, oh, well, you have to give the government, it has to wield all kinds of extraordinary powers. It's a very delimited case when you're facing an enemy where, yeah, there's a real worry that they'll win and, and remove your whole system of government. There's an interesting question here. Um, it's a bit long to read. I'm going to try to distill it. It's about the situation of, of companies that have more than 500 employees. And one of the programs is, a, I think it's called the, pay, the Payroll Protection uh, Plan or program, something like that, PPP. Um, and so I, I, think it's, I think the questioner is really struggling over if you can stay in business, should you and and sort of find accommodation should you be accepting any of this money or would you be wrong to do that um and i think this is to your first point in in our discussions it's it comes asking this question comes from a good place and it's important to recognize that and also while there are conditions where you should be taking the money there are also reasons to be concerned about what the downstream effects are going to be for you in terms of the strings and the implications so yeah, I, I don't think it's at all straightforward if a business is in that situation, what they should be uh, doing. I don't, I don't know enough from the, the, the question here to answer it, but I think that it's right to, to think hard about whether one is in a position to, to, to accept the money. And I want to read something from Ayn Rand's essay. It's the second last paragraph. So she's talked about things in the essay, public scholarships, uh, social security, unemployment insurance, uh, you brought up the issue, which she also talks about, and it's important. It's a very interesting essay. Uh, taking government jobs, and when can you do that, and so on. Um, but the second last paragraph is this, and I think this is important too. There are many situations so ambiguous and so complex that no one can determine what is the right course of action. That is one of the evils of welfare statism. Its fundamental irrationality and immorality force men into contradictions where no course of action is right, close quote. Um, and the situation we're in now is a, it's a complex situation. It's ambiguous. And for some of the reasons we've been talking about, you don't know if there's strings attached, they might be attached later and so on. It's very hard to figure this out and to think like, what is the best course of action here? And part of being opposed to welfare statism is understanding it puts people in this kind of position where everything seems wrong. Like if I take the money, it seems wrong, but if I don't take it and I lay off half my workforce, that seems unjust to them. And so, and in a certain way it becomes, yeah, there's not a right answer here. You have to do what you think is best, but recognize that you're choosing between lesser of evils. Um, and, and that's, the result of the government policies is part of their injustice, in fact. Uh, you're muted. Uh, sorry, uh, we're running up on, uh, on our time. Uh, there's one more question here that I think might be worth just using as a way to close. Um, so this is a question about uh, taking government, a payment from the government is one thing, but a loan with ongoing obligations that may open the door to future imposition of conditions is another thing. Uh, and the person gives the example, I don't know enough about this, but uh, the CBC, uh, which is a media company in Canada, where, you know, th there's uh, presumably there's pressure to align with government agenda or government messaging. Um, I, I don't know how he's funded. I don't know if that's really the case, but I think 
if you were running a newspaper or if you're running an intellectual organization like the Iron Industry or a think tank of some other kind, this is, this is the number one question. Like, what is it you're getting into? And do you have the integrity to withstand it? And if, you, if necessary, give them money back so that the, you know, whatever strings are attached, you can sever them. Because I think that has to be, um, if you're thinking about, so for Ayn Rand, integrity is a moral virtue. It's a necessary principle to live by. It means loyalty to rational principles and action. But you have to think about how that applies in every given situation where you're faced with choices. And I think that it, it's something, it's, none of the virtues are things that you, you, you make a choice once and it's there and you have it. It's something you maintain and you cultivate. You have to constantly think about your, the way, your path in life. And, and it's really hard in this situation that we're facing, as you put it with the quote that you just shared, Ankar. Um, but I, I think one of the things I would recommend for people in, in sort of grappling with this issue is to sort of think a bit more, think deeply and, and sort of get your hands around what it means to have integrity from Ayn Rand's perspective and why, how that's so, so I think different from most people's conception of integrity. And then to take seriously that this is an important value in your life. And it might mean that in your, in your situation, in your conditions, in the context for you, you should take the money. And that you should use it to help shore up your business and or, or if you don't need the money, take it and you can donate it to a worthy cause. And we were the Anran Institute was very happy to accept your uh, your uh, donations so that we can further the ideas that we support. But, there, uh, you know, you get an example of a business where uh, you want to support them, but really think hard about it so that you can come out of this. Knowing that you acted with integrity based on the. And that you are in a position after the fact, if this goes sideways, not what you thought it was to, to step back and say, no, in the name of integrity, I'm going to give it back or, you know, or, or whatever it is that is the appropriate response. But it's not something that you do and then forget about it because you have to really think about what the implications are for you as an individual and for your character. Because that, I mean, that's a big part of what's going on here because that's sort of the, the, the core of who you are and how you create value in life and your own path to success and happiness. Yeah, that's important. That's the last point Ayn Rand makes in the essays about that. And she says, this is the most important point. Um, so uh, if you're really thinking about this issue, grappling with it, I highly recommend that you read Ayn Rand's essay. It's very interesting. Well, with that, let's draw a line here. We're a little bit past our time. Thank you everyone who joined us on Zoom and for all your questions. I wish we could get more in, uh, but Thank you for joining us live. Those of you on YouTube, Facebook, Periscope, or wherever you're watching, or if you're listening to us on the podcast, we hope you'll join us next time. We, uh, we go live Mondays and Wednesdays here at 11 a.m. Uh, Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. You can get the information on our website, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.